Hello and welcome to uh, another episode of Who Knows. My name is Chris um, and I'm back. It's been a couple weeks so hopefully some of you have had a chance to catch up on some older ones. Um, I try to pump them out as much as possible in the time that I have. Then I'll usually take a break um, for who knows how long. I know my last one I said it would be a few days but... I got kids, man. Take up a lot of my time, so. But I'm back. Um, you'll see a pretty heavy stream of episodes in the next couple weeks, so stay tuned. Everything's going good. Back on track. And I want to start off with... Uh, chapter 3 of Ethics for the New Millennium by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Um, I'm trying to uh, find the time to read this, and I was like, well, I'm just going to do it on my podcast. So if you're here, welcome. If this is your first time listening, um, you've reached a podcast where I read things. So if you like the sound of my voice and you like what I'm reading, go ahead and check out all my other ones because I'm going to have a lot. You guys can listen to so much stuff. We're pretty much just learning together. So, I don't know. This is a... Let's see here. Yeah, about 12 pages to get through. On this chapter 3. So, we're just going to get right into it. Chapter 3. Ethics for the New Millennium. It is titled, Dependent Origination and the Nature of Reality. At a public talk I gave in Japan a few years ago, I saw some people coming toward me carrying a bunch of flowers. I stood up in anticipation of receiving their offering, but to my surprise, they walked straight past and laid the flowers in the altar behind me. I sat down, feeling somewhat embarrassed. Yet again, I was reminded that the way in which things and events unfold does not always coincide with our expectations. Indeed, this fact of life, that there is often a gap between the way in which we perceive phenomena and the reality of a given situation, is the source of much unhappiness. This is especially true when, as in the example here, we make judgments on the basis of partial, or partial understanding, which turns out not to be fully justified. Before considering what a spiritual and ethical revolution might consist in, let us therefore give some thought to the nature of reality itself. The close connection between how we perceive ourselves in relation to the world we inhabit and our behavior in response to it means that our understanding of phenomena is crucially significant. If we don't understand phenomena, we are more likely to do things to harm ourselves and others. While we consider the matter, we start to see that we cannot finally separate out any phenomena from the context of other phenomena. We can only really speak in terms of relationships. In the course of our daily lives, we engage in countless different activities and receive huge sensory input from all that we encounter. The problem of misperception, which of course varies in degree, usually arises because of our tendency to isolate particular aspects of an event or experience and see them as cons constituting its totality. This leads to a narrowing of perspective and from there to false expectations. 
But when we consider reality itself, we quickly become aware of its infinite complexity, and we realize that our habitual perception of it is often inadequate. If this were not so, the concept of deception would be meaningless. If things and events always unfolded as we expected, we would have no notion of illusion or misconception. As a means to understanding this complexity, I find the concept of, a, of dependent origination in Tibetan Tendel articulated by the Madhyamika Middleway School of Buddhist Philosophy to be particularly helpful. According to this, we can understand how things and events come to be in three different ways. At the first level, the principle of cause and effect whereby all things and events arise in dependence on, on a complex web of interrelated causes and conditions is invoked. This suggests that no thing or event can be construed as capable of coming into or remaining in existence by itself. For example, if I take some clay and mold it, I can bring a pot into being. The pot exists as an effect of my actions. At the same time, it is also the effect of a myriad of other causes and conditions. These include the combination of clay and water to form its raw material. Be beyond this, we can, point to we can point to the coming together of molecules, the atoms, and other minute par particles which form these constituents, which are themselves dependent on innumer innumerable other factors. Then there are the circumstances leading up to my decisions to make a pot, and there are the cooperative conditions of my actions as I give shape to the clay. All of these different factors make it clear that my pot cannot come into existence independently of its causes and conditions. Rather, it is dependently originated. On the second level, Tendel can be understood in terms of the mutual dependence which exists between parts and whole. Without parts, there can be no whole. Without a whole, their concept of parts makes no sense. The idea of whole is predicated on parts, but these parts themselves must be considered to be wholes comprised of their own parts. On the third level, all phenomena can be understood to be dependently originated because when we analyze them, we find that ultimately they lack independent identity. This can be understood from the way in which we refer to certain phenomena. For example, the words action and agent presuppose one another. So do parent and child. Someone is a parent only because he or she has children. Likewise, a daughter or son is so-called only in relation to them having parents. The same relationship of mutual dependence is seen in the language we use to describe trades or professions. Individuals are called farmers on account of their work on the land. Doctors are so-called because of their work in the field of medicine. In a more subtle way, things and events can be understood in terms of dependent or origination when, for example, we ask, what exactly is a clay pot? When we look for something we can describe as, it, as its final identity, we find that the pot's very existence, and by implication that all of the other, that all of the other phenomena, is to some extent provisional, and determined by con convention. When we ask whether its identity is determined by its shape, its function, its specific parts, that is, its being compounded of clay, water, and so on, we find that the term pot is merely a verbal designation. There is no single characteristic which can be said to identify it, nor indeed does the totality of its characteristics. We can imagine pots of different shapes that are no less pots, and because we can only really speak of its existing in relation to a complex nexus of causes and conditions, viewed from this perspective, it has no one defining quality. In other words, 
It does not exist in, a, in and of itself, but rather it is independently originated. As far as mental phenomena are concerned, we see that again there is a dependence. Here it lies between perceiver and perceived. Take, for example, the perception of a flower. First, in order for the perception of a flower to arise, there must be a sense organ. Second, there must be a condition, in this case the flower itself. Third, in order for perception to occur, there must be something which directs the focus of the perceiver to the object. Then, through the casual interaction of these conditions, a cognitive event occurs, which we call the perception of a flower. Now let us examine what exactly constitu constitutes this event. It is only the operation of the sense faculty. Oh wait, is it only the operation of the sense faculty? Is it only the interaction between that faculty and the flower itself? Or is it something else? We find that in the end, we cannot understand the concept of perception excuse me, in the context of an indefinitely complex series of causes and conditions. If we take consciousness itself as the object of our investigation, although we tend to think of it in terms of something intrinsic or unchangeable, we find that it too is better understood in terms of dependent origination. This is because, apart from individual perceptual, cognitive, and emotional experiences, it is difficult to posit an independently existing entity. Rather, consciousness is more like a construct which arises out of a spectrum of complex events. Another way to understand the concept of dependent origination is to consider the phenomena of time. Ordinarily, we suppose that there is an independently existing entity which we call time. We speak of time past, present, and future. However, when we look more closely, we see that again, this concept is merely a convention. We find that the term present moment is just a label denoting the interface between the tenses past and future. We cannot actually pinpoint the present just a fraction of a second before the supposed present moment lies in the past, just a fraction of a second after it lies in the future. Yet if we say that the present moment is now, no sooner have we spoken the word than it lies in the past. If we were to maintain that nevertheless there must be a single moment which is indivisible into either past or future, we would in fact have no grounds for any separation into past, present, and future at all. If there is a single moment which is indivisible, then we would only have the present, but without a con concept of the present, it becomes difficult to speak about the past and the future, since both clearly depend on the present. Moreover, if we were to conclude from our analysis that the present does not then exist, we would have to deny not only worldly convention, but also our own experience. Indeed, when we begin to analyze our experience of time, we find, here, we find that here the past disappears and the future is yet to come. We experience only the present. Where do these observations leave us? Certainly, things become somewhat more complex when we think along these lines. The more satisfactory conclusion is surely to say that the present does indeed exist, but we cannot conceive of it doing so inherently or objectively. The present comes into being in dependence on the past and the future. How does this help us? What is the value of these observations? They have a number of important implications. Firstly, when we come to see that everything we perceive and experience arises as a result of indef indefinite series of interrelation interrelated causes and conditions, our whole perspective changes. We begin to see that the universe we inhabit can be understood in terms of, of the living organism, which each cell works in balanced cooperation with every other cell to, to sustain the whole. If then just one of these cells is harmed, as when disease strikes, that balance is harmed and there is danger to the whole. 
This in turn suggests that our individual well-being is inadimately connected both with that of all others and with the environment within which we live. It also becomes apparent that our every action, our every deed, word, and thought, no matter how slight or inconsequential it may seem, has an implication not only for ourselves, but for all others too. Furthermore, when we view reality in terms of dependent origination, it draws us away from our usual tendency to see things and events in terms of solid, independent, discrete entities. This is helpful because this is, it is this tendency which causes us to exaggerate one or two aspects of our experience and make them representative of the whole reality of a given situation while ignoring its wider complexities. Such an understanding of reality as suggested by this concept of dependent origination also presents us with, significant challenge, with a significant challenge. It challenges us to see things and events less in terms of black and white and more in terms of a complex interlinking of relationships, which are hard to pin down, and it makes it difficult to speak in terms of absolutes. Moreover, if all phenomena are dependent on other phenomena, and if no phenomena, phenomena can exist independently, even our most cherished selves must be considered not to exist in the way we normally assume. Indeed, we find that if we search for the identity of the self analytically, it is apparent solidity, solidity, its apparent solidity dissolves even more readily than that of the clay pot or the present moment. From whereas a pot is something concrete, we can, we can actually point to the self as more elusive, its identity as a construct quickly becomes evident. We come to see that the habitual sharp distinction we make between self and others is an exaggeration. This is not to deny that every human being naturally and correctly has a strong sense of I. Even though we might not be able to say why it is so, this sense of self is certainly there. But let us examine what consti constitutes the actual object we call self. Is it the mind? Sometimes it happens that an individual's mind becomes hyperactive, or it may become depressed. In either case, a doctor may prescribe me medicine in, in order to improve that person's sense of well-being. This shows that we think of the mind as, in a sense, the possession, the possession of the self. And indeed, when we, think closely, when we think closely, statements such as my body, my speech, my mind, all have within them an implied notion of ownership. It is, it is difficult, therefore, to see how mind can constitute itself, can constitute self. Although it is true that there have been Buddhist philosophers who tried to identify self with consciousness, were self and consciousness the same thing, it would follow absurdly that the actor and the action, both the doer and what is done of knowing, are, are one and the same. We would have to say, I need to read that one again. Were self and consciousness the same thing, it would follow absurdly that the actor and the action, both the doer and what is done of knowing, are one and the same. We would have to say that the agent I, who knows and the process of knowing are identical. On this view, it is also hard to see how the self could exist as an independent phenomenon outside the mind-body mind aggregate. Again, this suggests to me that our habitual notion of self is in some sense a label for a complex web of interrelated phenomena. Here, let us step back and review how we normally relate to this idea of self. We say, I am tall, I am short, I did this, I did that, and nobody questions us. 
It is quite clear what we mean, and everybody is happy to accept the convention. On this level, we exist quite in accordance with these statements. Such convention is part of everyday discourse and is compatible with common experience. But this does not mean that something exists solely because it is said to or because there is a word that refers to it. No one has ever found a unicorn. Conventions may be said to be valid when they do not contradict knowledge acquired either through empirical experience or through inference, and when they serve as the foundation for a common discourse within which we situate notions as truth and falsity, this does not preclude us from accepting that, although perfectly adequate as a convention, the self, as with all other phenomena, exists independence on exists in independent exists in dependence on the labels and concepts we apply to the term. Sorry. Consider in this context an instance where, in the dark, we mistake a coiled rope for a snake. We stop still and feel afraid. Although what we see in although what we see is in reality a length of rope we have forgotten about, because of the lack of light, and due to our misconception we think it is a snake. Actually, the coil of rope possesses not the slightest property of a snake other than in the way it appears to us. The snake itself is not there. We have imputed its existence onto an inanimate object, so it is with the notion of an independently existing self. We also find that the very concept of self is, relate, is relative. Here consider the facts that we often find ourselves in situations where we blame ourselves. We say, oh... On such and such a day, I really let myself down, and we speak of feeling angry with ourselves. This would suggest that there are, in fact, two distinct selves, the one which did wrong and the one which criticizes. The former is a self understood in relation to a particular experience or event. The latter is understood from a perspective of the self as a generality. Yet, even though it makes sense to have an internal dialogue like this, still, there is only one continuum of cons consciousness at any given moment. Similarly, we can see that the personal identity of a single individual has many different aspects. In my own case, for example, there is a, per a perception of a self that is a monk, of a self that is Tibetan, of a self that is from Amdo region of Tibet, and so on. Some of these selves predate others. For instance, the self which is Tibetan existed before the self that is a monk. I did not become a novice monk until I was seven years old. The self, which is a refugee, has only existed since 1959. In other words, on one single basis there are many designations. They are all Tibetan since that self, or identity, existed at my birth. They are, on, are all nominally different. To me, this is further reason to have doubts about the inherent existence of self. We cannot, therefore, say that any one characteristic is what finally constitutes myself, or, on the other hand, is the sum of them. For even if I were to relinquish one or more, the sense of I would still continue. There is thus no single thing that can be found under analysis to identify the self. Just as when we try to find the ultimate identity of a solid object, it eludes us. Indeed, we are forced to conclude that this precious thing which we take, care of, take such care of, which we go to such lengths to protect and make comfortable, is in the end no more substantial than a rainbow in the summer sky. If it is true that no object or phenomena, not even the self, exists inherently, should we then conclude that ultimately nothing exists at all? Or is the reality we perceive simply a projection of the mind, apart from which nothing exists? No. 
When we say that things and events can only be established in terms of their dependently originating nature, that they are without intrinsic reality, existence, or identity, we are not denying the existence of phenomena altogether. The I- identitylessness of phenomena points rather to the way in which things exist, not independently, but in a sense interdependently. Far from undermine, undermining the notion of phenomenal reality, I believe the concept of dependent organ origination depi- provides a robust framework within which to situate cause and effect, truth and falsity, identity and difference, harm and benefit. It is therefore quite wrong to infer from the idea any sort of nihilistic approach to reality. A simple nothingness without any sense of an object being this and not that is absolutely not my meaning. Indeed, if we take lack of intrinsic identity as the object of further inquiry and search for its true nature, what we find is the identitylessness of identitylessness and so on, going into infinity. From which we must conclude that even the absence of intrinsic existence exists only conventionally. So while acknowledging that there is often a discrepancy between the perception and reality, it is important not to go to the extreme of supposing that behind the phenomenal is a realm a realm which is somehow more real. The problem with this is that we may then dismiss everyday experience as nothing but an illusion. That would be quite wrong. One of the most promising developments in modern science is the emergence of quantum and probability theory. To some degree, at least, this appears to support the notion of the dependent or origination of phenomena. Although I cannot claim to have a very clear understanding of this theory, the observation that the subatomic level it becomes difficult to distinguish clearly between the observer of an object and the object itself seems to indicate a movement toward the conception of reality I have outlined. I would not wish to emphasize this too strongly, however. What science holds to be true today is liable to change. New discoveries mean that what is accepted today may be doubted tomorrow. Besides, on whatever premise we base our appreciation of the fact that things and events do not exist independently, the consequences are similar. Such an understanding of reality allows us to see that the sharp distinction we make between the self and others arises largely as a result of conditioning. Yet it is possible to imagine becoming habituated to an extended conception of self wherein the individual situates his or her interests within that of others' interests. For example, when an individual thinks in terms of his or her homeland and says, we are Tibetan or we are French, they understand their identity in terms of something that goes beyond that of the individual self. If the self had intrinsic identity, it would be possible to speak in terms of self-interest in isolation from that of others. But because this is not so, because self and others can only be understood in terms of relationship, we see that self-interest and others' interests are closely interrelated. Indeed, within this picture of dependently originated reality, we see that there is no self-interest completely unrelated to others' interests. Due to the fundamental interconnectedness, which lies at the heart of reality, your interest is also my interest. From this, it becomes clear that my interest and your interest are intimately connected. In a deep sense, they converge. Accepting a more complex understanding of reality where all things and events are seen to be closely interrelated does not mean we cannot infer that the ethical principles we identified earlier cannot be understood as binding, even if, on this view, it becomes difficult to speak in terms of absolutes, at least outside a religious context. 
On the contrary, the concept of dependent origination compels us to take the reality of cause and effect with utmost seriousness. By this, I mean the fact that particular causes lead to particular effects, and that certain actions lead to suffering while others lead to happiness. It is in everybody's interest to do what leads to happiness and avoid that which leads to suffering. But because, we have, as we have seen, our interests are inter, inter, inextricably linked, sorry, we are compelled to accept ethics as indispensable interface, as the indispensable interface between my desire to be happy and yours. Let me read that last one again. But because, as we have seen, our interests are inextricably linked, we are compelled to accept ethics as the indispensable interface between my desire to be happy and yours. Right. Good stuff. That was uh, chapter 3 on the ethics for the new millennium by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Uh, so far I'm liking this book. I hope you guys are too. I, um, a lot of thoughts in there. A lot of, a lot of thoughts. So I hope you liked it. Um, like I said in the beginning, I will be pumping out some episodes here over the next couple weeks, um, and then I'll take another break, and that's just how it's going to be, because uh, that's uh, how I roll. So enjoy listening to me. I will be uh, here for the next two weeks. I am probably most likely going to start a Facebook page for uh, discussion, um, if anybody that is listening um, wants to have a discussion on what was in the reading, uh, we can do that for sure. Um, and I will have that Facebook page up sometime this week. I have a lot of things to do, but it's going to happen until then. I will, uh, keep hoping that you have a amazing time. Here we are on this earth. All right. Okay, bye.